how do we find balance in a world of tension? How many of you this morning feel like there's multiple responsibilities and people and circumstances that right now demand your focused priority, attention, time, money, and effort all at the same time? You feel that pressure, right? Like some, sometimes it feels like it's pushing you in. Sometimes you feel like you're being pushed out. We live, in a, we live a life that is filled with tension no matter where we turn. It's everywhere. So in the marketplace, in the business world, there's competing objectives between profitability and growth. Short-term goals versus long-term goals. Or valuing the whole organization versus its parts, right? On Monday, you'll deal with those tensions. In any case, more progress on one front usually comes at the expense of the other. You can only really focus on one thing at one time. Or take sports, right? There's this tension between pushing your body to the limit to make that play or overextending yourself to the point of energy. At every moment, the athletes have to make a call. Do I risk it all right now or do I live to see another play? Do we play reserved or do we push to the limits? What about that tension you feel between wise saving for the future versus actually spending money to enjoy the present moment? There's a tension there. What about the balance in managing life and work and career and family? Working hard versus resting well. And in the midst of these competing values, you struggle how to bring them all into balance. Now, on one hand, I want to say, I think balance is a myth. It's like a mythological creature like the unicorn or the centaur. Okay? Great in fairy tales, but I hope I'm not bursting too many bubbles. They don't actually exist in real life. So if by balance you mean a life of ease where you never experience conflict or you never experience competing values, I want to say that's not what we mean by balance here. You're never going to find that. That world doesn't exist right now. We live in a world that trends towards conflict, that traffics in pressure, and it thrives on competition. But if by balance you mean ordered, manageable, and restful, I have good news for you today. Psalm 127 is a psalm about finding balance in life. Not by resisting the, temp- the tension, but by actually embracing the tension. You see, balance is made possible by tension. So let me give you a couple of examples. Think about a bolt and a nut, right? They're designed to clamp two objects together. Now, if you don't have enough tension or pressure, what happens? Well, the two objects don't hold into place. But if you come at it with too much torque, too much tension, too much pressure, what happens? The objects buckle, they break, or you strip the thread and damage your tools. Or think about a person on a tightrope, right? Balance is found in the right amount of tension. Too little tension, and the rope is slack. You can't go across it. Too much tension, and the rope breaks. Think about bridges. Bridges are working with tension to apply the right amount of it and distribute the force accordingly so that it can withstand the weight as objects go across it. See, Psalm 127 today looks at the beautiful, 
ordinary, routine, everyday matters of life, like home and community and work and family. What we find is that God cares about how we deal with the pressures of everyday life, and he's given us wisdom this morning to apply it to our lives. Today, we want to see how God's word speaks to living in a, mar- living a life that is marked by prosperity and, se- and success in our everyday efforts like parenting and business, marked by trust in God, not worry and stress. As we look at Psalm 127 this morning, we're going to learn about three different tensions that we need to learn to embrace in order to lead a balanced life. And we'll look at the tensions of provision, then we'll see the tension of priority, and finally we'll see the tension of perspective. So let's look at verse 1 together. We'll have the words on the screen. Verse 1, Psalm 127 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Verse 2, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now this first verse speaks about just essential matters of life, right? Creating and conserving, building and protecting. These are the things that everybody needs in life. Just the ordinary necessities of life, right? You need place and protection. We all thrive when we have purpose and provision. We need to secure a home. We need to establish safe neighborhoods. We have to work for a living. Later, we're going to talk about having children and raising a family. All of it requires us to ask, where does it all really come from? And right off the bat, we're introduced to a truth that actually confronts and flies in the face of the independent American worldview. The psalmist says, unless, unless the Lord builds, unless the Lord watches, our efforts are in vain. That word unless introduces a conditional clause, right? That condition must be met or the rest of the sentence doesn't come to fruition. That's what a conditional clause is. Now, most of us intuitively understand that there's a conditional nature to effective, productive, and lucrative work, right? We generally assume that effective, produce, uh, productive, and lucrative work is dependent on our activity, right? On our effort. We think if I work hard, work late, work well, then I will flourish. And there's certainly truth to that, right? Like, you can't expect to get promoted, to get a raise, if you slack off, never show up, and produce lousy work, right? You can't expect to get paid if you don't show up. But what this psalm is getting at is something a bit deeper. What it's saying is either it will be the Lord's doing, the Lord will have his hand in it, or ultimately, when it's all said and done, it will be pointless, It's either or, there's no third option. So he's not saying you won't ever get the raise, you won't ever get paid. He's saying unless God's hand is in it, ultimately it'll be found to be pointless and vain and meaningless. That word vain means pointless, empty, and meaningless. And it comes up three times right off the bat. Unless God is involved, it will be in vain. You see, it's God's involvement that determines whether or not our work our careers, the things that we put so much time and energy into, whether or not they will have meaning and purpose. It's his hand that brings success and prosperity. 
And this is actually, I don't know if you know this or not, it's getting at some really deep philosophy. And so I, I did some philosophy work in my master's program, and he's actually talking about primary and secondary causes. Okay, you're getting your money's worth today. You're getting like a mini course in um, Aristotelian philosophy, whether you knew it or not. See, a primary cause is what ultimately determines something, right? Primary, first, the ultimate. It's what determines what something happens. And then there are secondary causes that are really and truly involved. They're part of the process, but they're in subordination to the primary cause. I'll give you some examples. Think about a company like Amazon, okay? Jeff Bezos, in this example, would be like the primary cause. He's the CEO of Amazon who's trying to take over the world. Okay? Is Jeff Bezos putting the items in the box? No. He, he has no clue what you ordered today, right? Is he building the robots who work around the clock in factories all over the world making sure that things are happening so that you get your items in two days? No. Is he writing the code for this website to be able to handle the millions of people on Prime Day that are shopping, finding deals? Is he the one doing that? No. See, there's thousands of secondary causes working round the clock to make it all work. In a similar but much bigger way, see, Jeff's actually not even a primary cause. He's a secondary cause. See, God is ultimately in control, and he determines what succeeds and what doesn't. He's the primary cause, and we are secondary causes. Now, this psalm isn't saying don't work. It's not saying that human effort and brilliant ideas are unimportant. It is saying that even the best techniques, even the best practices for productivity, even the hardest work can be ultimately frustrated in vain unless the primary cause is God. Simply put, the primary cause, God working, is necessary for secondary causes like us to have work that lasts, that's meaningful, that makes a difference. Think about it. God's building the house doesn't mean we don't need to pick up a hammer, right? It's not saying unless God actually gets out and um, hammers nails. That's not what it's saying. It doesn't mean we don't need to follow building codes and good engineering principles. We do. If you don't follow those things, the house is coming down. It does mean, though, that even our best techniques and efforts can ultimately fail if God's not involved. The building depends on both human and divine action. And the same is true for guarding the city. God's guarding the city doesn't mean that people can be careless and slack off and not be on guard, right? There needs to be a watchman in the tower. God's guarding the city does not mean that we can be careless. But the security of the city depends on both human and divine action. What we find in these first two verses is that even the best human carefulness cannot guarantee results. We just simply are not in control of the universe. Despite what we may think, despite our best efforts, we are not in control. Remember what the writer said about eating the bread of anxious toil? He says, if we work like it all depends on us, like it's all on you, you're going to feel the need to overwork, right? If it's all dependent on you, you're going to feel like I can never stop. And you'll neglect sleep and you'll burn both ends of the candlestick. The writer calls this eating the bread of anxious toil. In fact, it's actually why God gave the gift of Sabbath rest to his people 
right? You think about it in an ancient world who believed that you had to make all kinds of sacrifices to various gods in order to get the various things you need. Sabbath was a way to say, I'm in control. You don't have to worry about the crops today. I've got it. Take a break. Let it be a witness to the world around you that God gives his people rest. It doesn't all depend on you. See, if you remove God from the equation, you are left with you to make it all happen. See, everything depends on you, and the stress of holding it all together will lead to you being overworked, overwhelmed, and overstressed. You'll feel like you must work all the time, that your activity and your involvement is all that matters. Now, it's important, but we have to avoid working like it all depends on us. And when you find that, when you embrace that, you begin to find rest. God gives to his beloved the gift of sleep. And we can sleep because we're serving and dependent on a God who, catch this, never sleeps. He's always working. He's always doing more than you know. We can sleep because we are under the provision of a God who loves to provide for his children. Even the gift of sleep is a gift of his provision. So how can we summarize this truth? We actually work. The things you do really do matter. And we're called to work hard. You are called to do your very best. Pursue excellence. But then trust God for the outcomes. See, we're called to pursue excellence, not perfection. Give it your very best. But trust God for the outcomes because they are his to control. The ultimate success and outcome of our work is in the Lord's hands. This is how we free ourselves up from the trap of anxious toil. See, control might offer us a false sense of security, right? We think we're in control, but the reality is it's an illusion. You are not in control. Maybe that's the truth that your heart needs to settle in to believe today that you are not in control. Real security and peace is found in trusting in the God who is in control. It's saying, God, after you've done your work, I've done my very best. I gave it my all. Even the ability and motivation to give it your all is a gift from him. And then we say, now God, give me rest. Like actual sleep and just rest from, I've turned it in, it's done, and the outcome is just not in my control. Lord, give me peace, and I trust you for the outcomes. See, the wisdom in this psalm will lead us away from self-sufficiency to faithful dependence on the Lord. At the same time, it's not going to encourage us towards a flippant, passive attitude to just simply let go and let God, right? That's not what he's saying. That's where the tension is, right? Work hard. Do your best. Trust God for the outcomes. See, depending on God is not a call to passivity. It's a call to activity, right? We're called to be proactive. We're called to work. It's a call to live out the calling of God in our life and to go about our daily tasks with diligence and, and excellence, trusting that God will take our efforts and bring about our necessary provision. His grace to give is more effective than your best efforts. That's what the psalmist is trying to say. So how much time and energy and money do we waste on unnecessary anxiety? 
What are you trying to build and protect this morning without God? God knows the numbers of the hairs on your head. He knows that mine are diminishing. Right? He was first aware of it before I was. I lived in denial for a while. He's actively involved in our lives. He cares about your day to day, and he cares about your ordinary. He cares about the projects you have this week at work. He cares about what you're going to eat for dinner. He cares about your education right now. He cares about the growth and health of your family. He cares about where you live. He sees, he knows, he cares, he loves, so you can trust him to provide. He is working good in ways that we are unaware. And many times, our anxiety springs not because we doubt his ability and his power to work things out, but, but, but because we simply don't like the way he is working things out. We want to do it our way. We want him to do our bidding. See, everyone is trying to build and protect something. You can't avoid it. It's part of being human. Ultimately, behind many of our attempts to build and protect is this deep-seated need to control. So when that need to control grips you, take it to the Lord. Like Kevin was saying, you can't hide it. He already knows. You've got your hands gripped around it. Take it to him. Confess it to him. Relinquish the grip on control and ask him to free you from that prison. Because unless he frees you, you will never be free. Provision for life is not a result of extraordinary effort, but the grace of God. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. Happy is the man who hits the golden mean. So by working as to believe in God. See, it takes work to believe in him. It takes work to put your faith in action. And then he says, so believe in God as to work without fear. See, when you have that trust in God, you can work and go, I'm trusting in him to bring about incomes that are, uh, uh, outcomes that are for my good. Work hard, do your best, and then trust in God to provide. That's the first tension to embrace. The second one we see in verse three is one of priorities. Look with me at verse three. Behold, Children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of a womb of a, the fruit of the womb of reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. It's no coincidence to me that the psalmist moves from work to family. A house becomes a home, what? When people live in it. A city is worth protecting. Why? Because people live there. He moves from the working and the tasks to relationships and families. And in God's economy, the basic building block of a society is the family. See, in a psalm about the everyday stuff of life, it makes sense that he'd go from work to family. And this verse challenges us to see children the way that God sees them. Now, this is particularly relevant, especially where we live, because children are often, especially in our day and age, seen as a nuisance and not as a heritage. Have you felt that shift happening um, in our culture today? Josh Moody, a pastor writing on this psalm, said this, it's common for us to see the blessing of children clearer in retrospect, like when you look back on your life, or more rosier in prospect than the daily reality when children are the dominating aspect of your life. That was good truth to me. I've got five kids, right? 
They feel like they dominate my every waking moment. And I needed to be reminded that, no, they are a heritage. See, more often than not, the cultural approach to children is like the warning bottle on the side of an aspirin, right? Take two aspirin and keep away from children, right? These verses offer three shifts in seeing children today. We're going to see them as a heritage, a reward, and as weapons. Okay, let me explain those. Verse 3 says plainly, children are heritage from the Lord. Children are an inheritance from God. Now, while it's true that eventually children will inherit from their parents, this verse teaches something opposite. It says that the children are a gift, an inheritance, a heritage you receive from God. See, a heritage is something that you receive, and it's valuable, right? Next, it says that children are a reward. Not, not a reward like you've, done, like you've done good and now God is, is, is blessing you. That's not, that's not how it works. See, God is a God of grace. He gives what we don't deserve even when we don't deserve it. The Lord rewards us with children as a mark of his grace, not because of something that we earn. One pastor wrote, where society is rightly ordered, children are regarded, not as an encumbrance, which means like as uh, an annoyance, but as an inheritance, and they are received, not with regret, but as a reward. See, children are valuable. They're a gift. And finally, we see that they're like arrows to a warrior. Here's what he means by this analogy. A warrior does not want an empty quiver, right? Like if you're an archer, you have an empty quiver, it's bad news for you, right? Parents are to spend time with their children while they're young to point them and shape and straighten them so that they're ready to fly when the time comes. And then they'll be ready to come to our aid when the time comes. See, at first, children are liabilities. They're costly, right? But later in life, they actually become assets. That's, that's, that's all wrapped up in that language of heritage. The psalmist says that when the time comes, that the parents will not be um, put to shame at the gate. Here's what he means. The gate was a place for two things. It was this idea of, of both war and legal dealings. Because, see, the city gates was the place where the city was defended, right? If you protect your enemies from coming through the gates, the whole city is safe. And they were also, in times of peace, a place to settle legal disputes. It was kind of like the courthouse of the day. Justice and legal disputes were settled there. So in either scenario, if you're facing battle or a legal issue, a man who has strong children around him will be well protected. Now hear me, that does not mean children don't come with stress and strain. Believe me, they do. They're part of the reason why I'm losing my hair, okay? But for all their difficulty, ultimately, children are not to be regarded as or seen as a strain and a nuisance, but as blessings, as an heritage. It, it's, it's literally why we take the three minutes every Sunday to bring them up, to welcome them in, to have them in our gathering, even when they're loud and even when they're crying, to say, you are welcome here. You're valuable, you matter, and you're a part of this church too. And we spend time reminding us, you are a blessing and a heritage, and we're gonna pray that the Lord blesses you and keeps you and makes his face shine upon you. It's a way for us in our liturgy to be reminded of our, that ourselves because that's a truth we can so often forget. Now, I want to address a potentially sensitive thing in the room. I know in our church, I know our sheep, I know there are people here who have not been able to have children or having children has been tough 
or for whatever reason, it just simply didn't work out. I want to speak to that today. That's real loss, and it's okay to feel that. One of the things I love about Christianity is it's not a stoic, you can never feel anything kind of faith. When there's loss and there's grief, we're actually called to enter into it and to feel it and to bring that to God. That's actually what we talked about last week in our sermon. And so if you're not married or if you can't have children or whatever the circumstances, I want you to know this. That doesn't mean that God is punishing you and it doesn't mean that you're void of his blessing. I know the myth of that can kind of creep in sometimes. You think if it's not going this way that maybe God doesn't like you or maybe God is angry at you. And I want to dispel that myth because that's not true. One of the things I love about the church is that the church is the place of redemption. The blessing of the church and the beauty is that it's a family. And what that means is that we can have spiritual children in place of biological or adopted children. You'll see this relationship between Paul and Timothy in the scriptures that Paul was like a father to Timothy. Now, I didn't grow up in a distinctly Christian home. But after I became a Christian and I was a part of a church, there were men and women in that church who became spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers to me. Men and women, I could go down the list who loved me, discipled me, and welcomed me into their families. I am who I am, and I am where I am today because of those moms and dads. See, you can invest and adopt children through the family of God. So with that said, how does all this relate to priorities, right? See, in the first half of the psalm, the focus is on our work and how it ultimately depends on God. Now the shift moved to the family. The language shifted to heritage and reward and value. And those ideas call into question how we order our priorities, right? Because we're supposed to order our priorities to what is most valuable, right? That just intuitively makes sense. But the problem of sin is that we tend to unorder or disorder what is truly valuable. What can happen is we can get short-sighted or nearsighted of what really is valuable. We'll take things that are less valuable and we'll put them on the higher shelf of our priorities. That's what happens when we get our priorities out of line. See, priorities get at what matters most in the day-to-day. See, everyone has the same amount of time, right? That's the equal playing field, right? No matter if you're rich or poor, everyone every day gets the same amount of seconds, minutes, and hours. The question is, how do we allocate and use that time to reflect what really matters? Again, this is particularly important in a culture where we place a greater value on our career more than family. While our careers are important, you'll never find in Scripture your career called your heritage. It'll It'll never be called like this is your inheritance from God. It's never seen as the reward, only as a means to living the life that God has established for us. So what we find is our work is to support the building and establishing of thriving families. Again, for those without children, God has provided the church as a family to redeem what's broken so that everybody has an opportunity to build and to establish a heritage because ultimately the church, the family of God, is what is truly lasting. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Did you know my greatest prayers, my deepest prayers, are that my biological children would become my brothers and sisters in Christ, become part of the family of God. 
that brings us back to the truth that we saw earlier. The growth and health and well-being of our family and our children is ultimately in the hands of the Lord. Lydia Brownback has an excellent work on the Psalms, and she says this, Everything we have and all that we do thrives only through the Lord's blessing, and that includes our families. So it means that helicopter parenting and over-involvement in our children's lives will not ensure their happiness, their health, nor their salvation. Ultimately, we are not in control. We have to trust a loving God who loves them, catch this, even more than we do. Even more than we do. Unless the Lord moves and intervenes in the lives of our children, all of our watching and guarding is in vain. Tim Keller says it this way, giving our children to God is the only way we get to keep them. Psalm 127 challenges us to reorder our priorities in line with God's priorities. Again, it's not that our work and careers don't matter. They do. It's a very high priority. But balance is found when we rightly order our uh, priorities according to God's design. Perhaps the reason you feel like your life is out of balance is because you've got disordered priorities. See, when you live against the way that things are designed, you're, you're naturally going to feel like things are out of line, right? God has designed this life to work and to thrive and to function in a particular way, and balance is found when our priorities are rightly aligned with his. Our work, our achievements, our dreams, our families are all to be aligned according to God's way. Right? If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, before sin entered in, our calling, the, 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 the uh, mandate to humanity was this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God has always placed a high priority on family. And if you take that, that idea and, and that principle and you make it even more broader, it teaches us that in the everyday rhythms of life, we are called to prioritize relationships over work, people over tasks, and family over our careers. Balance is found when we rightly order our priorities in line with God's design. So to apply that truth, what priorities do you have that are disordered from God's design? I mean, there could be all kinds of reasons how, that, how we've gotten off track. Maybe it's just subtle drifting, or maybe it's not been through um, intentional decision-making. Whatever the case may be, are there subtle ways where you give preference to work and career over and above relationships and family, where they're neglected from the time, attention, and discipleship that they deserve? Are there ways where we have neglected the family of God, the church, for the immediacy of work? And where the Lord brings conviction, we need to actually take action, make changes, so that we rightly order our priorities. Balance in life is found in embracing the tension of provision and priorities. And finally, real quickly, it's in the tension of perspective. Now, this last point um, came to me as I was just simply reflecting on the overall message of the psalm. You see, this psalm challenges us to look at life through God's perspective and not our limited view. So some will trend towards a farsighted approach. What that means is when you're farsighted, you can't really see what's in front of you. You can't see the home, community, work, family as good gifts to be enjoyed. You see them merely as necessities to be procured. Nothing more, nothing less. You may need them to live, but they don't really matter. 
It's kind of taking a a ho-hum approach to life. See, in this perspective, you just simply do the bare necessities to survive. So you don't cultivate your home to be, uh, your house to be a home and to use it as a way to extend hospitalities to others. You see work as a chore, something to be done and not a tool to be used for the kingdom of God and for his glory. We do just enough not to get fired. You don't see your work as the everyday plan of God to see his kingdom flourish, to extend common grace to everyone. Farsighted people will not see families as gifts to be enjoyed. You just simply are trying to keep people alive and eventually get them off your payroll, right? You don't see your communities as as places uh, to be enjoyed, but just as as mere convenience, right? So you don't want to live in the wild frontier. You want stores close to you. You don't see communities as places designed where you are to be uh, called to love, serve, and bless those nearest to you. Now, on the opposite end of that is the nearsighted approach. You can't see the long range. You can't see what's far off. You miss the forest for the trees. This is the tendency to see our home and our community and our work as the ultimate source of joy. It's it's all you can see. This is the be-all, end-all approach to the everyday stuff of life. It's the perspective that owning and having a nice house and a good community is your manifest destiny, and it consumes all of your energy in every waking thought. Your heritage is wrapped up in what you can accomplish through your work and family. In this way, the gifts become more important than the giver. You miss how the everyday matters of life fit into the broader schemes of God. See, the first perspective fails to appreciate the gifts God gives us. And the second perspective sees the gifts as most important. Do you see the difference between the two? In the final analysis, this song, this psalm, is calling us to entrust our lives to God to see the everyday stuff of life as a gift from him to be enjoyed and cherished, and at the same time, their gifts to be invested and put to work to see the kingdom of God flourish. So do you tend to view life as mundane, where work and family are merely just social constructs created so that creatures can live a longer life? Or do you tend to overvalue the stuff of life and give it um, undue meaning and significance in a way that it could never hold up? God is calling us to embrace the tensions, not slack to either side, and to adopt his perspective that our everyday matters matter but they don't matter most. They don't hold the ultimate significance. Now I want to close by looking at John chapter 15, verse 4 and 5. We'll have the, the, the words up here. It teaches us where our true provision is found. It focuses on the true priority and gives us a perspective that we need to see this morning. Look at what it says. Verse 4, abide in me. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you're here this morning and you feel overworked, overstressed, overwhelmed, I have good news for you this morning. If you feel like life is in the balance of life is off, your priorities are disordered, that your perspective is skewed, I have good news for you this morning. 
See, Jesus' words to us today are not complicated or complex. They're really simple. Ultimately, he says, abide in him. Abiding is one of those great words that we never use anymore. And it simply means this, persist, remain, and stay. So you can have it all, and without Christ, you have nothing. You can have nothing in with Christ. And Jesus says, you have it all. See, when you're anxious or overwhelmed, you're not able to rest. You won't find peace. You'll be stressed out playing the day over and over in your mind. You'll fear tomorrow, and you'll forecast that day over and over and over in your mind. You'll be anxious because you feel the weight of being in control. But the reality is, like we looked at earlier, you're not in control. And when you realize that, when you believe that, you can sleep. See, what Jesus is saying is it's not um, complicated, but it doesn't mean it's easy, right? Like the idea of remaining in him is a simple concept, but it's hard to do. Abiding in Christ can be very difficult. Why? We're prone to wander. We're easily distracted. We drift to the comfortable. We prefer the easy. We want the benefits without the hard work of persistence. The beauty of Christ is this. He endured. Jesus persisted. Jesus remained. And Jesus stayed. He's the true vine because he did not turn away from his mission. On the cross, he took on our sin. He took on our waywardness. He said to the vine dresser, the father, he said, cut me, prune me. I'll be cut off so that they can remain. See, where we fail, he does not. And even when you feel like you can't abide anymore, Jesus abides for us. That should motivate us to stay all the more, to persist all the more, to remain in him. See, Jesus is the life we need, and he's the strength we lack. For those in Christ, we are called the beloved. The psalm says, his beloved will find rest. If you're in Christ, that's your name. Your name is beloved. You are loved by God. So when we are prone to overwork or overstress or get overwhelmed, don't forget Jesus. Because of who he is and what he's done he will build his house. His city will be guarded and your work will not be in vain because his work will not be in vain. He does not offer us the bread of anxious toil, but he gives us the grace-giving bread of his broken body for us to take, eat, and be filled and we're about to do it here this morning. Because of Jesus at the gate, we will not be put to shame and we will receive our inheritance. Let's look to him this morning and find that he is the only firm foundation to build our life on. Let's pray.